What do the Big Mac Index, Bitcoins, and the Commerce Clause in the U.S. Constitution have to do with 16th century Spain? Believe it or not, these are all ideas that can be traced back to the so-called School of Salamanca, a group of thinkers who formed the intellectual backbone of the Spanish Golden Age. Nobody expects the School of Salamanca. Now, the extent of the influence of the School of Salamanca on the modern study of economics is debated. However, some very smart people have argued that there is historical continuity between the economic thought of Renaissance Spain and those of Enlightenment France and Industrial England. Bernard Dempsey, Joseph Schumpeter, Raymond Grouvert, Marjorie Grithe Hutchison, Murray Rothbard, and my favorite, Jesus Huerta de Soto. Now, this view is favored by libertarians, adherents to the Austrian School of Economics, and by people we generally classify as fiscal conservatives. Think of it this way. Here we are focusing on the early modern history of a type of thinking about economics that today includes Milton Friedman, Thomas Sowell, and Jim Rogers. Like the leading figures of the Austrian school, Karl Menger, Ludwig von Mises, and Friedrich Hayek, the Salamancans focused on ethics, human nature, behavior, and above all choice, decision-making, when thinking about economics. In the famous Hayek versus Keynes debate, it's pretty safe to say that the majority of Salamancans would be with Hayek. Why do 16th century Spanish theologians study economics? Three reasons. The new reality of large-scale commerce on a global level. The socioeconomic changes induced by the importation of so much gold and silver from the mines in the New World, and three, the expulsions and conversions of Jews and Muslims at the end of the Reconquest. More Christians, both new converts and old Christians, now were taking part in commerce. Thus, their confessors were cornered into examining the morality of their activities. Notice the brutality of all of this. Exiling merchants and enslaving miners led to the birth of the modern field of economics. But this takes nothing away from these men. The Dominicans and Jesuits of Salamanca were very good at locating and promoting geniuses. So let's take a look at the topics that interested the school of Salamanca and consider the sophistication of their observations, analyses, and conclusions. Let's do it. The school of Salamanca was interested in the nature and history of money and monetary policy. Diego de Cuba Rubias, famous for his portrait by El Greco, wrote a treatise on money around the middle of the 16th century. Martín de Azpilcueta, Pedro de Valencia, and Juan de Mariana all wrote about the causes and effects of inflation. In the English-speaking world, Sir Thomas Gresham visited Seville in 1544 and found it very difficult to find gold coins. Gresham's law describes the effects of inflation on the circulation of different currencies. The School of Salamanca was contemplating the exact same phenomena and reached very similar conclusions. Apercueta's quantitative theory of money states that prices relate proportionally to the amount of money in circulation, thus laying the groundwork for everyone from monetarists like Friedman 
to government interventionists like Keynes, to hard money advocates like Jefferson, Rothbard, and Huerta de Soto. After Azbilcueta, Valencia, and Mariana exposed the state, in particular the Habsburgs, as the most common culprit for inflation because governments love to print fiat money in order to finance their corruption, extravagance, and military adventures. Amazingly, Luis Sarabia de la Calle, Azpilcueta, Luis de Molina, and Juan de Lugo were even concerned about the potential immorality of fractional reserve banking and eventually perceived how banks could inflate the money supply by turning loans into new deposits and vice versa. Things got political very fast when Mariana complained about the Habsburg policy of debasing the quarter coins and destroying the wealth of Spanish citizens. He was accurate, if early, in predicting disaster. Inflation ran wild during the first half of the 17th century. The traditional marker for the collapse of the Spanish Empire is the Treaty of Westphalia of 1648. Notice how well the collapse in the value of the quarter coins corresponds to the collapse of the Spanish Empire. Also notice that these ideas penetrated to the level of everyday readers. Miguel Cervantes, for example, was clearly influenced by the school of Salamanca. He makes numerous allusions to inflation in Don Quixote de la Mancha. Description in the first chapter of Rocinante's hooves having more quarter cracks than a real refers to a disease that affects horses. It also indicates the fact that the Habsburgs were extracting silver from the smaller denominated quarter coins, which meant in turn that more of these quarters were needed to buy a silver real. The Spanish warhorse rotting at its base is a striking image. And it's also a satirical metaphor for the wealth destruction wrought by the inflationary policies of the Habsburgs. The School of Salamanca was interested in foreign exchange rates. The large number of currencies in circulation allowed the use of the complexities of exchange rates as ways of disguising interest on loans. This led the Salamancans to study exchange rates. Ideas on exchange rates evolved quickly over a very short period, which justifies grouping these thinkers as a school. Saravia, for example, understood that currencies with different metal contents were valued differently in different places. Soon thereafter, Martín de Azpilcueta described the quantitative theory of money, and then he was the first to articulate what today we would call the purchasing power parity theory of foreign exchange rates. If it takes $3 to buy an item in the U.S. and 21 quetzales to buy that same item in Guatemala, then the exchange rate should be $1 to 7 quetzales. Azpilcueta essentially invented the Big Mac index 500 years before McDonald's invented the Big Mac. The school of Salamanca worried... Hey, I'm working here. 
The School of Salamanca worried about the moral legitimacy of charging interest on loans. This topic was the legacy of the ancient bias against merchants. It also reflected Christianity's late arrival to mature thinking about commerce. Judaism and Islam had long merchant traditions that had developed legal and theological exemptions and invented sophisticated financial instruments designed to evade Old Testament prohibitions on interest. According to 18th century Tory jurist William Blackstone, when money is lent on a contract to receive not only the principal sum again, but also an increase by way of compensation for the use, the increase is called interest by those who think it lawful and usury by those who do not. The School of Salamanca gradually came to a range of logical conclusions about lending money. Interest rates reflect demand for money and credit risk. Money has a use value, and lenders should be compensated for lost opportunities. The more liquid money is, the more valuable it is. That is, coins in hand are worth more than money which is physically or contractually restricted. Around the middle of the 16th century, Henry VIII and John Calvin modernized Protestant views on usury. At the same time, the School of Salamanca publicly debated the issue. At one end of the spectrum, in his 1541 treatise on exchange rates, contracts, and usury, Cristobal de Villalón seems incapable of conceiving of a business loan. Instead, he insists on charity. If someone needs money, a good Christian is morally obliged to give it to him. At the other end of the spectrum, treatises by Saravia, Tomás de Mercado, and Luis de Molina signal a new mindset. In his 1637 treatise on interest, Felipe de la Cruz Vasconcillos states the fundamental injustice of expecting to borrow money for free. Astonishingly, Azpilcueta even conceived of a money market as the aggregate of the different time preferences of the participants. Aggregates of time preferences? I don't think Columbus had any of that in mind when he went to the New World. He just wanted to make oodles of money. But he didn't. <laughs> the topic of usury is a good example of how the stereotypically negative view of the late scholastics as mindlessly reproducing dogmatic intricacies is false. Aristotle, later endorsed by Aquinas, argued that using money to earn money was unnatural. But even though this idea was advanced by the two thinkers that they most respected, many late scholastics exposed its absurdity. Expand your knowledge by downloading readings, podcasts, and creative comics from our online course. Sign up at salamanca.ufm.edu. It's cool and it's free. A new media production, Universidad Francisco Marroquín, Guatemala, 2018.